guest this week is Bluebird. He's one of the first people I ever met on this journey through rap. And as I proposed to him, I feel that no one that's been on this podcast has had a more similar path to me than him. We both kind of cut our teeth being these, like, auxiliary MCs for the group Grand Buffet. We both did a lot of our early touring with people that skyrocketed into indie fame, and we both played a whole lot of shows and put out a whole lot of albums and are still kind of under the surface to some degree. So let me tell you something. We did this interview through Skype. I went upstairs, told my wife, Gabri, Jacques was one of the best guests ever. It was such an awesome interview. I came back downstairs. Half of it is unusable. The audio just sounds insane. So we're splitting this into two parts. This is the part that was salvageable from this week, and we're redoing the second half of his life story next week. Before we set it off, I want to do this plug for my man real quick. He's playing in Baltimore at Metro Gallery on June 16th with Isid and Cocaine Baselines. First show in Baltimore in a long time. Wraparound Robin Tour also starts very, very soon. Midwest, Northeast, Stand up. Check wraparoundrobin.com for these dates. The artwork this week, as always, is by Mike Riley. Check him out at mikerileycomics.com. And once again, we're being hosted by Splice Today. Check them out at splicetoday.com. Let's, Let's go, go in. Born in Miami, but born and ra- raised in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And what was it like back then? Oh, man, those were the golden days. You know, my... My older brother took me to see Two Life Crew open for Jodeci at the Miami Arena when I was 12 years old. You know, that pretty much sums it all up. That's wild. What's even even wilder is that the opening group was uh, Lords of the Underground, (laughs) Chief Raka. (laughs) And uh, my brother and I were the only ones in the entire arena standing up singing Chief Raka. Everybody in Miami was hating so were you this rap fanatic from a young age? I mean, partially. You know, I grew up, uh, I was a product of my older brother, and, my, and they each had different influences. So uh, my neighbor was more of a skater, you know, we used to, uh, but so was my brother. But we used to build launch ramps, and, like, each of them would pass me their tapes. And uh, my brother oddly went from, like, hair metal to rap music. So it went from, like, Motley Crue and Dio and then I believe Anthrax was the transitionary period, you know, that I'm the man cut. <laughs> oh, <laughs> where yeah. Were, where, where he was trying to rap, kind of. So that that's what, where it turned. And then, you know, onto the Beastie Boys and Public Enemy and Run DMC. And then from then on, I was just a rap fanatic. And when did you start to get the idea to make music? 
not for a long time, man. I didn't get serious until like early college. Mm. Yeah, I had no vision in high school. I was just too all over the place. And what did you do initially? Initially, I had no idea because I didn't have any friends that were doing anything like this, like that were making music. So when I moved up to Orlando to go to school, uh, I had some friends who were really into drum and bass. So we used to like host a monthly event. And I was kind of like fancied myself kind of an MC at that point. I used to write these horrible rhymes, but I could not freestyle. And so I would just host the like drum and bass night. And I would like throw some raps in every once in a while. And then shortly after we started a hip hop weekly that I would also host the open mic and still could not freestyle, but I would just write a rap like every week. So I would have like fresh raps to kick at this uh, weekly. Um, and then from there I branched into starting to write my own raps. I started going out to see this band called the nature kids, which was kind of like a big deal rap rock. You're familiar with the nature kids. Yeah. Um, I started going to their shows in and around Central Florida and showing up. And every time I showed up, they would bring me on stage to quote unquote freestyle, which I still was just kicking writtens, but I would write a new one every time I knew I was going to their show. <laughs> and it kind of tumbled from there, man. Nature Kids offered to take me on tour. I, uh, you know, broke up with my girlfriend, dropped out of school, sold my car, broke my lease and went on tour with them. And, you know, that's how I met Grand Buffet. And... What kind and, of tour were they on, like, back then? So our first tour was, I want to say, like, either 99 or 2000, and we were being funded by these shady individuals in Miami who bought this huge RV and, like, put their logos all over it. They were called the Whack Pack. <laughs> so we were riding in this, like, I think it was a brand-new, like, 25-foot RV with these Whack Pack stickers that we, we peeled off about halfway to California. Um, and it, you know, it, it was kind of busted, but kind of cool. We had these like manager type dudes who set up some pretty big shows. We played CBGBs in New York. We played the rainbow room in LA, you know, a lot of busted shitty shows in between. Um, but what happened is we, before, let me, let me go back a second. Before we jumped on that big tour, we were doing runs up and down the East coast trading with Geppetto. What was uh what was that booking agency in Baltimore at the time? It was like Funkstar or something? Funkstar, that dude Adam? Yeah. Yeah. So Funkstar would send artists down to Florida to trade shows with us because we had, you know, like a couple cities on lock. And then we in turn would go play shows up there. And that's how we ended up meeting Geppetto and playing shows with them in and around Baltimore and DC. And eventually they sent this like two-man rap group down. I remember the first day we didn't know you know, grunge or Mrs. Mrs. P brush. And, uh, they just like, were opening up for us at this, at our spot that we played like every month, Will's pub. And, um, five minutes into their performance, we knew like, Holy shit, these dudes are legit. And we ended up doing a run with them up the East coast. And that's where we like solidified our relationship with grand buffet. So then okay. when we took our national tour, we were like, I remember we were held up in Los Angeles waiting on some like, as funny as it sounds like this record deal was like the contracts were being penned. Right. And we were held up in this apartment for like three days and somewhere in the middle of that, a huge fight broke out between the two main guys in the band and we ended up breaking up. <laughs> oh, okay. So at that point, the manager from nature kids, which was more, I believe you dealt with more back in the day. He was oh, used yeah. to a lot of shows in Orlando more kind of came to me and he said, Hey man, like whatever you want to do, 
solo, like I got your back. And at the same time, grunge kind of took me under his arm and said, Hey, you know, I want to see you do some solo shit, whatever I need to do, produce you some beats, you know, record you, put you on a couple shows, take you on tour. And that's where I really got like, you know, some traction and really got going as like bluebird. So what was the Smith project? Was that like part of nature kids? Sort of? Yeah. That was an offshoot of the nature kids. I was never actually a nature kid. I had like one or two songs on their newest album, you know, and I would get up and freestyle with them. And then yeah. Smith was uh, Troy, the rapper, Jackson, the guitar player, the three of us rapping, and then Tommy Sickles, who was the DJ and drummer for Nature Kids, but was our DJ. So it was kind of like a, a side project involving almost all the members of the band. And, uh, you know, we recorded a full album. We kind of, like, we never really toured on it, but we played a couple shows, you know, as a group. Yeah, and you you guys played in Baltimore. It's sort of... It was yeah. called Last 10 Days on Earth at that point. Yeah, yeah, because we lost a member and it was, yeah. That was, that was just grasping for straws. Wow, we did do a Last 10 Days on Earth tour. Yeah. And, you know, now that you clarify that, that's where it kind of, that was like Nature Kids and Smith kind of breaking up, but me, Troy, and Josh still wanting to, like, try to continue. Uh-huh. And on that tour is where we realized, like, yeah, this is not going to happen. And that's when Grunge took me and said, hey, man, like, I actually stayed in, in Pittsburgh after that tour and just, like, hung out for a couple weeks, recorded with uh, the boys, and then jumped on their tour with Wesley Willis. And that was, like, when, it, when that shit started. You know, you're on tour. What made you be, like, I'm just going to chill up here with these dudes and, like, get something done in Pittsburgh? I mean, honestly, I had nothing to go back to. Like when I left for that tour, I gave it all up. So like going home meant like going home to mom's house. Like I had given up my house that I had with some friends, you know, like given up my car. I really would have had nothing to go back to. Like I was all in. So when it kind of fell through, like that tour was supposed to be too long. And it only went, you know, about halfway through before it canceled as far as the, the national um so I think when I came back, I was living at my, when I had left for the 10 days on earth, last 10 days on earth, like I really had nothing to come back to. So, you know, grunge offering me an opportunity for, you know, one, a place to go <laughs> and two, yeah. uh, a place to record and a chance to make some songs on my own. And then, you know, also jump on tour with them. That was like, that was the best opportunity I had available. And I love I, that EP you guys put together. Yeah. Thanks, man. I, that was, uh, super fun man that was the beginning is that still available uh i mean it's like a cdr that that ep took on a few different lives you know like uh grunge and i had only finished i believe three songs in total yeah and and then some friends of mine in orlando ended up helping me finish it and so I had printed up versions to go on the tour of grand buffet and then i believe i added to it for another tour I did. So that EP is called like, uh, does man's short lifespan make sense? Right. I think, I think that's what it's called. And I, I probably have like some CDRs laying around, but that's not available digitally or, you know, it's, it's on the interwebs somewhere. Yeah. But it, it's kind of like too old for, to properly yeah. make available. Yeah. And the funny thing is like people grab a hold of it digitally and will like add weird one-off songs I did. So there's like five different versions of that album, like floating around on the internet. <laughs> That's tight. <laughs> it's and, tight. And where does the jerk circuit project fall in there? 
So that happened right afterwards. The, oh, okay. the guys that I, when I came home from the tour, I ended up moving in with Philco and sign one uh-huh. and sign. We were working on a jerk circuit album. And when I got the call to do like a very comprehensive tour of grand buffet, like United States and Europe, I figured I needed an album to bring with me. So I took the couple songs that I finished with grunge and some of the jerk circuit songs that just had me on them or me and one guest. And we kind of like threw them together into that album. That's how that album was, was born out of the union of those two things. Okay. Yeah. I actually only recently got a copy of that from uh, Josh Rogers. Hell yeah. Yeah. Okay. The tape. Yeah. Tape. Yeah. Yeah, and those were like that album never came out, and it's so you notice that some of those songs were on my older EP. Yeah, and that's why because we kind of cannibalized for necessity because the Jerk Circuit, like uh, Sign was from Michigan, Philco was from Cleveland, so we were all about to separate, and you know the project wasn't going to go anywhere. We were done playing shows, so we said, "Fuck it," you know, let's cannibalize and uh, and for the opportunity. And how did this tour go? Like you were saying, a full tour. With Grand Buffet, I guess that would be you doing like a full set and everything. Yeah, that was me opening and then also doing Americas with them during their set. Um, Man, that that was that was everything for me. You know, that's where I got my chops. You know, for me, like to Grand Buffet in like in all their glory, you know, you being the opening act, you know, better than anyone that like you better do something real special for these people to remember you after Grand Buffet is finished. Right, right. So, like, just getting up there and, like, rapping my rap songs was not going to cut it. And, like, that's where I tell everyone to this day, like, that is where I learned my chops, and that is where I learned, like, how to, not crowd control, like, how to everything, you know, beyond crowd control, how to read a room, how to entertain, how to turn a bad situation good, or how to just enjoy the bad situation. You know, all those lessons came with that tour. I remember hearing about some crazy show where you like it was like some weird like jock kind of bar or something <laughs> yep, and, yep. and you just did a show where you were just like laying down silent for the entire well that's not that's thing. not like how it started you know i right. forget where it was man it was somewhere like where are the jackass guys from like i want to say outside of philadelphia yeah yeah this is this one town that I can't remember, like you know, Chester it was like West something Chester like that. Something. Yes. And it was a rough like sports bar. And like, it was just, we were touring with sex too. It was sex, grand buffet and me, you know, so just a weird bill to begin with. And like the sound man was a fan of grand buffet. So he booked the show thinking like people would just dig it. And like, when I started, I got about three, four songs in and people were just sitting at the bar I believe they had the volume of the TV turned up, so they like were trying to drown me out. Right, right. And so after a while, I just resorted to like fucking with them, and uh, you know, telling them if they had a request to like write it down and stuff it in a bottle and throw it at me. And I started freestyling about them, and eventually got like a couple, three or four of them's attention, and they stood up and turned around and started watching me. That's awesome. So what I did is I was like, okay, let me play a song. So I tried to play a song, and uh, for some reason, Jackson was just laying on the stage behind me, you know, for whatever reason. He was doing that before we started. And when I started, I was like, you know, you, you want to move? And he was like, no, cool. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, all good. <laughs> so I was rocking off a CD player. I played this full song and I'm not like half-assing it. I'm like giving it, you know, I'm, I'm still giving it 110. Right. And the song gets to the very end, skips and starts over again. 
and I hear Jackson giggle. So I just turn around and look at him and I go into the song again. <laughs> so I continue, get to the end of the song and fucking skips, goes back to the beginning again. So I, I swear I played the song six full times. <laughs> Because halfway through the first song, the four people that were interested turned around and sat back down and started watching TV or doing right, whatever. Right. Just ignored me. So by the end of the sixth time, I'm laying on the floor next to Jackson with like my feet kind of hanging off the stage. And I do it six fucking times. And him and I are just in tears laughing. <laughs> and, and a bunch of like bros. I don't notice, but some some people grab me by the ankles and start dragging me off the stage. And I, I thought it was grunge. And I open my eyes and it's like two or three you know, bro dudes. Oh no. And they drag me out the back door of the club and throw me into the grass. <laughs> and I kind of stand up, you know, with, I thought like I was about to get jumped, like the shit beat out of me. It was yeah. just this alley, no, nobody else but me. And I, so I kind of like throw my hands up awkwardly and look at them. And it's a little bit of a standoff and fucking grunge just comes bursting through the door and, you know, through the crowd of three guys was like, is everything okay here? Is everything, is everything good? And, I'm kind of looking at them like, is everything good? And they're like, yeah. They kind of laugh and go back inside. And uh, I just decided, like, man, that was the best ending to a show I ever could have possibly had. I think you're right, man. Yeah. Yeah, man. It was amazing. I'll never forget that. That's awesome. And Grunge had my back, like, 100%. Oh, yeah. What was it like going to Europe at that time? So I believe, if I'm not mistaken, like some of the shows I wasn't able to get on. So like me and Europe was more driving for them, helping with merch. If I could play a show, I would. But mainly right. I was just doing America's with them, like during their set. Right. And, you know, I mean, that blew my mind. Like that was my first time over there. I didn't even really have a record. Like uh, I hadn't yet done my first like solo record, my uh, Sloppy Doctor with Endemic. Yeah, You know, I, I didn't know anybody over there. I didn't know anything. So everything was just new to me. And uh, that was my introduction to my, like, you know, crazy love affair. Like, after that, I, I, uh, I went headfirst into Europe more than the States, you know, because I felt more love over there and more uh, support. And I just had this crazy attraction to go back every chance I could. Mm. And on that tour with Grand Buffet, we ended up playing this huge festival in Paris, like, uh, a few days before the end of the tour. Uh-huh. It was this outdoor festival, and I did a front flip over a guard gate and broke my foot mid-song, and like broke my foot in half. Ended up finishing the song, and afterwards, Grunge was like, "Hey, can you run to the car and grab me a box of CDs?" And I looked at him, and I was like, "I can't, I can't fucking move." And uh, we had to buy a crutch and wait three days to go back to the U.S. so I could go to a hospital. <laughs> And get oh, taken no. care of. <laughs> um, and I ended up finishing off the rest of that tour on crutches. So that was pretty busted, but uh, funny to look back on. Wow. And so what I was going to say is at that um, festival, I met these two groups of guys called uh, Stacks of Stamina, who were from Sweden, and Cavemen Speak, who were from Belgium, who I had like had a little MySpace contact with, you know, back in the day. But um, ended up running into them at that festival, and then like that started me going back solo and like doing a project with those guys, which was called Gun Porn. Like the next year, that's really interesting. So, just like based upon you have enough shows to get back over there and maybe hopefully pay for it, you can you now have the freedom to like go over there and like work when you want basically yeah what i did is i just like made friends with every promoter that i met with on the ground buffet and some worked, some didn't and then that coupled with a few of the outside friends i had 
I like pieced together a hodgepodge tour the first time I went back. You know, just bought a plane ticket. Um, I believe this the first promoter to pop, to buy my plane ticket out there was this 15 year old girl from Athens, Greece. And wow. so she she bought me a $900 plane ticket and threw me a show in Athens. And I like flew out there, stayed in her like little brother's room. Her father hated me. It's mm. like, you know, my daughter's bringing this American dude with dreadlocks <laughs> to our house to play a rap show, you know? Yeah. And so that first tour started in Athens. I hung out a couple days. And then I like from there went to Belgium where I met up with the Caveman Speak dudes. And they had a couple shows booked for me and we did some recording. And then I would hang out for a week or two. And then, you know, I, I just kind of kept it going. I had a contact in Zurich. It was it was a busted tour. And I would just kind of piece it together with a lot of space in between. But I would go out there for like two months at a time. Oh, wow. And just, you know, maybe have 20 shows, you know, maybe 15 Going back to the Grand Buffet tour, which was crazy because they also took me to Canada. And at the Halifax show is where I met Scott DeRoss from Endemic, ah. who came to me after the show and was just like, hey, man, I loved your performance. Like, what's up with your album? Like, who's putting out your album? And that was the first time, like, any kind of label had approached me about anything. And he was a small label, but he had, like, released stuff with, with 6-2 and Buck 65. And, you know, like, that was all, like all in my wheelhouse like that was what i was in you know i was the anticon dude so like for a guy to come who runs this canadian label who's releasing these artists that i look up to to come to me after a show and be like hey man who's releasing your album like that was crazy and all that you know circling back that all comes from that one tour with gb which is crazy you know yeah. and so shortly after that like i think that gb tour was like ah man 2001 or two i don't remember because my record with Endemic, my first record came out in 2003. So like the end of 2002, I went back, that guy Scott flew me out to Halifax and decided like, hey man, I want to put out your record on my label. I want you to come out here and record it. And that was my first like Bluebird solo record on Endemic. Mm. And so when we released that and it came time to do my own European tour, I pieced together my contacts and Scott actually helped me, you know, piece, uh, put a lot of that shit together. Okay. And who produced most of Sloppy Doctor? So it was a little bit of Sign One, the guy from Jerk Circuit. Um, okay. Scott DeRoss produced some beats, you know, Lord Grunge. I basically just reached out to every single every single dude I know. It was a couple guys from Canada, you know, um, Scott and this guy, Uncle Fester and Grunge and Sign One from Orlando, my homie X from Orlando. I just, re I just went into every scene that I had known and met people and like, you know, searched for beats. And that kind of became my style, you know. And, and did you feel like the record was well received? Yeah, I think yeah. for sure. You know, um, it uh, we licensed the vinyl to these dudes called Vinyl Kings out in Germany. Uh huh. And uh, eventually, like a couple years later, went back. You know, they went out of print. They made they only printed five hundred, and they sold out in the first month over there. Oh wow. And so that coupled with like me, they were huge and they were doing a lot of really cool Canadian hip hop, West Coast underground stuff, you know, weird European hip hop. And uh, they ended up licensing a lot of vinyl from me and like different groups of mine and, and definitely boosting us in Germany, like hugely. Did you tour the U.S. more at that point? Like, I think here and there, you know, like I did... A few shows with Grand Buffet here and there. I would yeah. do a couple little runs. Um, but mainly I was touring Europe. 
Yeah. You know, definitely. Because that's where I was I was getting, you know, it was just more well-received. I had more support. They loved the record. You know, people knew the lyrics out there. Okay. In the, U- in the U.S., it was kind of spotty. Right, right. Like, the next time I remember seeing you in Baltimore was with Astronautilus. Yeah, and yeah. that was, um, shit. Yeah, I don't, I think, I, I went a while without making a record. Okay. And I don't know if I toured with Andy, I guess it was before I moved to Montreal. Yeah, definitely before. Mm. So I hooked up with Andy just like doing shows in and around Central Florida or Florida, you know. He was a Florida guy but had gone away to Texas to go to school. And like when he would come back to play shows, everyone would tell him like, you got to catch this guy Bluebird. And same, when I would play, everyone would tell him, you know, you got to catch this dude Astronautilus. So somebody booked us together on a show in Gainesville. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, he asked me to come up and freestyle with him. And our freestyle consisted of us lying about how long we had been friends. <laughs> like we had just met that night and everybody kind of believed the story. And so we just kind of like, we just let it ride from there. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it was great. And he had this, you know, fucking amazing manager named Harpoon Larry. And they had this Honda Element that, that, that he had bought. And they were just like in it. Like all in, like yeah, we're just we're just touring. Like this is what we do. He's my manager. I'm the rapper. We tour. So any opportunity I got to like jump in that car with them, I just I, I took. And I remember that tour. Was it also with? Is it is his name J D Walker? J yes J, yes. Yeah. So man, it's funny that you're like filling in the gaps for me because a lot of this is a very spotty history for me. <laughs> you know what? You know how it goes, man. It all yeah. goes so fast. Um. I believe I had done some shows with Andy around Florida, but we had never left the state together. J.D. Walker was Portland, Maine. He was like in the original group with Soul and Alias, like pre-Anticon. Yeah. And I'm forgetting the name, but uh, um, I had heard some of his records and was a huge fan of his. I also met him on the Grand Buffet tour when we played in Portland, Maine. He came out to my show. So that's another another contact that I made on that tour. Right. And so when I had... A record he reached out to me and said hey you know let's put together a tour i got some stuff up in the, the northeast and maybe you can do some of the south and i'll drive down to florida and we can do this tour and uh so a few of those shows were with astronautilus i believe the baltimore show being one of them see this is another point where i feel like there's i see this like similarity because all right around the same time i was touring with dan deacon a lot yeah and i feel like we both maybe had the experience of like touring with someone and then seeing them go like skyrocket to go big fame kind of. Yeah. On those tours, did you see that? Like, like this dude is about to set it off or, or no, was, no, like not yet. I mean, sure. Like personally, I would look at him and be like, yeah, he, this motherfucker's got it. But what had happened is is he continued grinding it out in the U.S. Uh-huh. And I got I wanted to get out of Florida very bad. And so when Scott from Endemic moved from Halifax to Montreal, we were having a conversation one day and I was talking about where I wanted to go. And he was like, why don't you just come up here? And so I ended up in like 2005 moving up to Montreal. And the whole, I was there for about two years, and from there I went to Berlin for a year. So for those three years that I was outside of the U.S., I came back every once in a while um, for holidays and, and shit like that, or like I would get flown to L.A. to play a show. 
And so during that three-year period, I was going to Japan. I went to the Middle East. I went to India, you know, all playing rap shows, like in all over Europe. But during that time, Andy was just grinding it out in the U.S., like still just like doing circles in the U.S. for three straight years. He did the Warp Tour. You know, he did every house show. He just kept going and going and building his following. So, you know, I didn't see it happen. Like, it's not like it happened overnight. When I came when I came back from Berlin and was like moved back to Florida and was hurting for shows, you know, that's when they offered me another opening slot on the tour for them. And it was that tour that I really saw, like how big of a difference that three years had made, you know. So from the tours before, it was both of us just like on some busted shit, you know, making seven dollars that three people three people came to and splitting it on a bottle of NyQuil to chug because we were too sick to go to sleep, you know. Oh yeah, I remember seeing you guys and you being like, "Yeah, we were just rocking sets with fevers." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but but I feel you, you know, like for for like you being with Dan and so like with Andy, you know, after I left the states for three years and, and came back, you know, I saw the the fruit of the work he had put in in those three years and like how much it had like lifted him up. Yeah, and did you feel at all like? I should have done it like that or, or yeah. yeah, looking back at it for sure, you know, because, uh, and, and that's ultimately why I didn't move back to Berlin. Cause when I left, I was living like, that was the first place that I was living as a rapper. You know, I had three different booking agents in different zones and like any given month I was gone for two and a half weeks, you know, and that was the beauty of living in Berlin is I could just, I wouldn't have to tour for a month. I would just be like, all right, this week I'm playing four dates in France. I'm going to come home for a couple of days. You know, then I'm going to bounce to Belgium for a couple of days. Then I'll do a week around here where I can just fly out and play this festival. Like my availability was just like green light, you know, always on. Bluebird is available, not just like, oh, he's available for fall. So that worked out because I had a really hardworking French agent. I had a German agent, you know, and I had Eastern Europe. It was, it was fucking awesome. And uh, I moved back because I was kind of feeling a little, a little, guilty i guess because i left like i still owed some money to my father i still owed some money to my homie for a plane ticket and like i was making enough money in berlin to live comfortably as a musician but i still kind of owed money on the so i wanted to come home and like zero out all my accounts and then bounce to berlin oh okay um and and when i came home is when the, the financial crisis happened and i just thought like yeah man i'll just bartend again or do construction i'll fall back on what i always did and it'll be cool and I came back and that just wasn't the case. And I ended up having to go back on a tour with Astronautilus for $20 a night because that was like the best thing I could scrounge up for myself, you know? Mm. And they weren't, you know, and it wasn't like nothing, no hard feelings. They were just like, this is how it is right now. Money-wise, like we can't offer much more than this. And I was like, shit, you're offering me a show. And I know what the crowds are going to be like. And I'll just hustle merch. And I don't have any other opportunities. So like, I might as well just do it. And, you know, and that's when I, when it really dawned on me, like, man, it's easy to live like this Peter Pan rap life in Europe, you know, or not even rap, like, you know, jazz musicians did it throughout history. People have gone to Europe to be successful. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say, necessarily say it's easy. It's just different. It's different hustle. Uh-huh. And I definitely feel more appreciated and more supported. But like people aren't looking to Europe to see like what's popping. All right, man. Stay tuned for part two. See you next week.